Hello? You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Oh, and Happy New Year. As you may have learned from the last episode from Season 2 of True Sunlight last week, 2023 was a roller coaster of ups and downs, confronting evil and rallying action where change is desperately needed. On Friday's Cups Up to the Holiday Party here on Hilton Head, we saw in real life the power and emotional connections we are bridging at Luna Shark. Shout out to Renee, Mike, Abby, Steve, and Chris from the Weston Hilton Heads team for making Friday so special. It was incredibly encouraging to see over a hundred members join Eric, Sandy, and I from all over the low country and beyond. Places like Maryland and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and more. We were so proud to honor our special members, Ed, Stephanie, and Jeff with our inaugural Sharky Awards. Appreciating y'all with a token to say thank you for going above and beyond. Eric, Liz, and I took this last week off from COJ to enjoy time with those who matter the most to us. So today's show is going to be a little different. In 2024, we plan to share new methods and platforms to expose new truths, give voice to new victims, and get the story straight. 
Like we hoped to do last May, we are expanding our scope on true sunlight and adding new voices to Cup of Justice with new interviews like the ones you will hear today. Most of all, we are focusing on welcoming new members to the Lunashark Premium platform with a membership drive in January. On the first episode of Season 2 of COJ, we are sharing segments from interviews and content that Premium members regularly enjoy. Today, we will be sharing my conversations with two amazing women, Emily D. Baker, a legal genius and host of a powerful YouTube channel with almost a million subscribers. Emily is an attorney who covers everything from Johnny Depp to Murdoch and beyond. Stay tuned for more episodes like this with E.B. and Liz getting the scoop on everything under the sun. And today, we will also share parts of my thought-provoking interview with Laura Richards, who hosts a magnificent podcast, Crime Analyst. Laura is an award-winning criminal behavioral analyst, formerly of New Scotland Yard, and an international expert on domestic abuse, coercive control, stalking, sexual violence, homicide, and risk assessment. Learn more about Emily D. Baker and Laura Richards by searching on YouTube or by clicking the links in the description. And stay tuned for an extra awesome episode of True Sunlight that we will be publishing this Thursday. If you liked the interviews from today's show or want invitations to in-person and virtual events, access to breaking documents and content, or opportunities to crowdfund new investigations in 2024, please visit lunashark.supercast.com to join Lunashark Premium today. All that being said, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. This is so exciting. This is Emily Baker. (laughs) (laughs) Emily is probably one of my favorite people that I've met throughout this whole crazy Murdoch situation. Um, A lot of y'all have sent me her stuff along the way and said um, she shouted out to you and her podcast and I heard of you. We have a lot of like crossover fans, I feel like. So this is really exciting. I feel like a lot of people have said this is like the crossover that I've always wanted. Have you seen those comments? <laughs> I'm here for it because it's the crossover I've always wanted too. <laughs> Me too. And it just took a minute, but I'm so excited. So Emily, if you want to start out by um, just introducing yourself and explaining what you do, and you started out as a district attorney, correct, in California, and now do you identify yourself as a law a law tuber? <laughs> I will tell you the story about how that phrase came about in a minute, but I'm, I mean, I'm Emily D. Baker. For those of you that don't know me, I've been a lawyer for over 17 years. I was a deputy district attorney in LA County for over 10. So I am a trial attorney by nature. When I left doing that, I was a consultant for mostly small and online businesses. There weren't a lot of attorneys in that space that took particularly what female entrepreneurs did seriously. So somebody would be making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars doing something that more traditional attorneys considered like a cute hobby. And I'm like, no, you have you have a business and, and tax implications and you need all the things that any other business would need, whether you're a content creator or you're selling crochet patterns, you have a business. And so I moved into consulting and I had a podcast that supported that. And then 
when a lot of online business owners, particularly my clients, had all their kids home to do distance learning in 2020, we stopped all of our work. Um, I stopped, I, the same thing happened to me. All of us just took a collective like gasp and a pause. And then the podcast started to grow and I started doing more legal commentary. And I realized that in the legal commentary space, there aren't as many lawyers that have extensive trial work. A lot of lawyers who have great work working for firms or who worked in civil, but there aren't a lot of litigators. I think it's because litigators love to talk and they want to be in court litigating. So a lot of litigators don't do this because they're busy doing other things. Um, and there aren't that many. And I realized there was room uh, and need to break down not just civil cases, but criminal cases as well. And I try to balance the two, I was a research attorney for civil judges. So my background in civil is on kind of the judge side and then in court on the criminal side. And it's been great. There's these cases that capture everyone's interest, but people don't always understand the nuts and bolts of the legal side. And often traditional media will cover the beginning of the story, but not always follow it through to the end. Like even with Depp v. Heard, cover it to verdict, but there's still appeals that happened afterwards. There's still ongoing litigation now. Same with Murdaugh. Yes, there was a murder trial, and yes, there was a verdict, but there's an appeal pending and a ton of litigation still going on around him. So I like covering the story all the way through, even though that story sometimes takes years to tell. Yeah, I think we definitely relate on that. And deep dives, um, our audiences just really crave deep dives and understanding the law and this growing community of people that are interested in law and interested in like how the court works. And they're not just, it's not the gross part of true crime. It's like kind of, I, it's a little nerdy, but it's great. Like, Oh, it's a lot nerdy and it's great. <laughs> and it's educating and it's, yeah. And it's educating people. And it's also getting like younger, younger girls and teenagers interested in law. And I love that. Um, you mentioned Depp v. Heard, and that was a big moment for you. That trial was kind of your blow up. It was huge. And I thought my YouTube channel had kind of grown before that because I had gone from like, I, I when I started doing this specifically, because I've been on YouTube for quite a long time, but when I started doing legal coverage specifically after I left the DA's office and could do that, I was just at about 5,000 subscribers in October, 2020. And I was thrilled. I was like, I never thought I would hit this milestone. And then just in May, 2021, I had hit a hundred thousand and I was like, okay, well we're, we're done. This is where we've gone on YouTube. I'm so excited. And then the Depp Heard case started a year after that and everything shifted in my live streams were my top live concurrent viewers were at 370,000 live concurrent viewers. It's a lot of people. And it was a case that because there was celebrity, I thought people would be interested in maybe the highlights. I was really surprised how many people were interested in watching edited video depositions that were presented as testimony and understanding how a civil case works because we often see cases highlighted and streamed that are criminal. It's very rare to see a case streamed that's civil and then you have two uh, celebrities involved and you have lawyers that are kind of characters and it just the interest takes off from there isn't it exciting when like i was there in a very similar place where i really didn't have like a goal number of what i wanted to i thought if a hundred people listen or a thousand people listened to me i didn't know what i like i yeah but when you hit it and then you keep going 
it's it's a little shocking and i can't imagine i mean our podcasts aren't live but we don't i haven't gotten those numbers live but i always think about when i get behind the mic of like this is like a a, a few stadiums full of people that are yes. listening to what i'm saying and i'm kind of glad that they're not all in front of me at the same time because i would get very nervous but it's just really cool and it's an organic growth and this all these independent con independent creators um that are just rising up like you and i and that's been really exciting to watch and i feel like uh, it's a big threat to traditional media but how did you um how do you think the debt v heard trial really changed this uh trial coverage case coverage um kind of the true crime world also it's not really true crime, but it's... I mean, my audience started calling it court casting because there's times I really do feel like an MMA sports commentator where I'm screaming, no, God, no, that's not the right objection. What are you doing? And so there's times I really do feel like a sports commentator when I'm doing live trial coverage because it's not all just breaking down. Sometimes it's actually, well, me breaking down and just screaming um, at what's going on in trial, which I love getting to do because if you're sitting in court in traditional media taking notes you can't really let your face um detail how you're feeling for a jury or at least i don't think you should i um i started watching trials when i was in undergrad in a courthouse i ended up practicing in as a da and i remember one of the bailiffs coming over and being like i know you're watching for school i was an undergrad at the time he's like but your face and i was like what he's like you keep making faces at the at things people are telling you can't let your face like distract the jury or dissuade and what they might be thinking or they might be wondering what you're thinking it kind of takes away you need to sit here neutrally and i was like oh okay got it like i got my face was giving me away and that happened to me in court too i used to get in trouble because my face was a bit too expressive sitting at council table which makes great commentary but i think it changed i've seen the um traditional media companies changing the way they're doing trial coverage i can't imagine that's any other reason than seeing how successful the way that content creators have covered things and i think traditional media doesn't see an audience beyond a three-minute soundbite and content creators like us have proven that there's an audience that doesn't want to be spoken down to. They want to be included in the conversation and they're capable of having longer, more nuanced conversations about really complex and complicated issues. And I think it is starting to shift the way traditional media shows up, particularly on, um, on social media and on YouTube, because YouTube's coverage smashed coverage everywhere else of Debbie Heard. It's where people wanted to watch the trial because you can talk about it in real time too. You can chat about it when it's happening. And people wanted to watch it and talk about it. They had YouTube up at their offices and were just talking about this trial the way that we saw during the OJ Simpson case. It was, everybody was talking about it. When I went to, uh, you know, Starbucks, people were talking about it. And that's kind of a rare thing with trials and it it really has shifted and allowed youtube to be the best place to watch live trial coverage because you also can interact it is i've considered it like sports a lot of time um and like you're rooting for your team and you feel like a part of a community by being on one side of a situation and you can like it's it's a lot like sports and but it's educational the still, still wears <laughs> black you know sitting up on the bench <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Right. Um, but like, what got you interested in the Murdoch story? And let's go back. You started following the Murdoch story before the Debbie Heard trial, correct? I did. And I started covering it right after the roadside incident because I was like, wait a second, you're telling me there's a lawyer in South Carolina that got shot in the head on the side of the road, but then it's coming out within days that that was actually staged with insurance. And my audience really came to me and was like, look, you're covering the Girardi case in Los Angeles, huge plaintiff's lawyer, hundreds of millions of dollars, wife, well, third wife was on Real Housewives or is on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. They're like, this is like a South Carolina Girardi unfolding, but also there's all these questionable deaths surrounding this family. I was like, what? So that's when I started the roadside incident pulled me in and it was the kind of the corrupt lawyer angle that really caught my attention because now you have a lawyer in court admitting to insurance fraud and a staged, you know, suicide for hire plot. I'm like, what is happening in this case? And that's when I jumped in and my first couple times diving into the case and looking at it, I'm like, wait, what? Wait, what? tell the Satterfield case, wait, what? And on and on and on my document, breaking it down and going through your past reporting and stuff, it unwound in such an unbelievable way that I was immediately completely invested. And that's when I found your podcast on it. Cause I'm like, every, people have to be talking about this, but it wasn't being talked about as much at that time. What were some of the biggest mistakes between both of the prosecution and the defense during the Murdoch trial that you noticed? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't know about like mistakes, mistakes. I think some of the moments that that stuck out for me. The first thing was you could see the internal struggle with Jim Griffin dealing with Murdoch, and I think their third attorney who did tech. Um, I am going to forget his name because I didn't pull it up before we talked, but their third attorney who did most of the the technology, I think might have been a better fit to deal with Murdoch because it's distances the personal relationship. And I wondered a lot of that throughout the trial because you could see times that Jim Griffin looked like he was doing his job, but also personally struggling um, in asking questions, in making argument. And I just wonder if he was too close um, because as an attorney, you want to do what's right for your client, but you also have to do your job and you also have to ethically do your job. And it, it felt like those things were so close that you could see it. And I just wonder if Jim was too close to be really the lead counsel, um, doing a lot of the argument, doing a lot of the witnesses. And also it seems like wrangling Alec and Alec's expectations and the strategy. So the way that they apportioned their work was curious to me. I would have liked to see the the younger attorney who did their most of their technology a lot more in the trial. I think he was really strong on their team. I think he presented well and he didn't he didn't come across in the same almost patronizing way that Dick comes across in court to witnesses. I thought he would have been a better fit. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that about Jim Griffin because I could feel the exact same thing and especially it all just kind of came crashing down on him in his um closing argument i remember just looking at him and it it felt like being in the mind of somebody who is trying to convince themselves that if their friend is not a 
the murder of their wife and son. And it just did not come off as convincing. It came across as, oh my God, am I supporting this person? And it was really sad and heavy. Right. And I, I, I felt very much for him. There were things Poot did that just pissed me off throughout the trial. Um, it kind of being flippant and things like that. But there was also things where he argued really well and was quite entertaining. And I'm sure a jury was charmed at the beginning and then annoyed by the end. But with Jim, it was a different weight and it it felt heavy. And I think you're right that the jury was probably looking at him wondering if he's processing this out loud and coming to that realization during his closing. Because I don't think his closing um, delivered as powerfully as it needed to. Yeah, I think it just came across as, so we're not sure. Uh, just him literally going through the evidence in his head and trying to say, uh, <laughs> trying to ultimate, ultimately convince himself that his friend is not guilty versus, and uh, yeah, I mean, Dick Harputlian, you could tell, could care less. And I know that he was saying that to members of the media and like, I get paid anyways, whatever. He seemed to really love a high profile case, which which you could tell. And again, I really did think that their their third attorney was was excellent. I wanted to see more from Philip Barber in the um in the entirety of the case and and every time he came up, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be linear and clear. It's going to be a good cross-examination." It's it I I thought he was absolutely excellent um for the defense and maybe not too close to this case. And then for the prosecution, there were times that Creighton got into the weeds. I also think he's a bit too close to this case um, sometimes because he knew things that everybody else didn't know. And it felt like sometimes he would skip over stuff. And I'm like, wait, where are you going with this? Because, and I've been in cases like that, especially with paper cases, there's so much information in your head trying to back up to a jury that knows nothing about the case and lay the groundwork sometimes can be hard. You have to bring it all the way back to the beginning. And when you're dealing with so many cases, that can be difficult. But he got real excited about the financial stuff. And at some points I was like, sir, they get the they get the point. You can move on. Your jury is with you. You can move on. Um, but I like the way the prosecution team worked together. I like the way they used their attorneys. It takes a very strong leader to bring in also younger attorneys and portion the work like that. The temptation for senior trial attorneys is to do it all themselves. It's a very, very difficult thing to allow your team to also handle things because attorneys are so used to being control freaks. We like to be in control of our cases and we like to be in control of what's said, but they did a really good job of apportioning it across attorneys. And I think some of the criticisms are regional differences. Um, there were times that I thought that um, we saw matters being a little less formal with some of the witnesses, but I also think none of the witnesses seemed bothered at all. All of the witnesses, when he came up and stood next to them and talked to them, some of the witnesses were like, ew, some of the witnesses didn't seem bothered, but it seemed to be his practice. And again, he was watching the jury. I think he's a very smart attorney. He was watching the jury. And if the jury was bothered, I think he would have changed. If Judge Newman had said something, which he did a few times, was like, go back to your seat stand over there um judge newman let him know to not be maybe so so informal but he had a good trial presence but there were things that i was like oh sir um i think for a national audience how many guns were in the courtroom and how frequently they got pulled out kind of shocked a national audience they were like what is happening with all of these weapons 
it was interesting to see the the kind of national response. Do you think this is better or worse, having all the this massive amount of people watching these cases and very interested in digging into these cases? And but at the the flip side of that is, is all the online harassment that everybody involved faces, um, the spread of misinformation. Um, do you think that there's anything that could be done to find a balance between cutting it all off completely and being able to have a transparent courtroom where everybody can see it and interact. I wish I had a, a solution for but it's something I do think about quite a lot because it's happened in other older cases before the internet where you still had media in court detailing every witness that testified and there's still case law on witnesses that were harassed in person in small communities at their jobs um, before the time of the internet. So the internet makes it a little bit easier but it's not particularly a new problem. I think there needs to be more conversation, hopefully like the one that we're having, about how this can impact justice ultimately if witnesses won't, particularly in criminal cases, if witnesses won't come forward and, and say what they saw happen because they're afraid, it can really start to impact people. But I don't know if having it not online will change that because we've seen, particularly in Idaho in the Koberger case, the surviving roommates have never testified in open court. There's there's been um, motions filed, not identifying them by name, identifying them by um, initial, and the entire internet found them anyway because they were connected to the victims on social media. So even though that's been protected through the courts, it's still all out there. So I don't know what the solution is other than to crack down on those doing the harassment. Because if they're held responsible, really held responsible, it might actually start to change things where people don't feel so... Um, safe being anonymous on a keyboard because honestly, no one's truly anonymous. It's just how long it takes you to find them. Exactly. And that's one more thing that I would like to talk to you about. Do you think, <laughs> one more question. I, lo I love having a conversation. <laughs> this is obviously something that's been fresh in my mind recently. And David and I have been talking about this a lot. Um, do you think the social media companies should be held responsible as well for especially, um, and we've talked about this a little bit, Reddit and the snark groups that, like you said, uh, and I've, I've seen it too, There's I've never seen one talking about a man and constantly harassing and making fun of a man. Um, is, there any, is there anything that could be done for the companies that make money off of these hate groups and do nothing to cut down on the harassment. We're in an interesting position in the US with our freedom of speech and the fact that freedom of speech is so broad, short of defamation, that you need to go after the individual who's doing the harassment, not the companies that are, are harboring essentially the harassment or, or facilitating it on their platform because of Section 230. And Section 230 allows things like YouTube really to exist. Because if YouTube got sued every time somebody didn't like my face or what I said on the platform, YouTube would just go back to only vetting like traditional media or not existing at all. So there is really a push pull. What I would hope to see is companies making it easier for legitimate subpoenas to, to get after those that are using their platforms for targeted cyber harassment and then allowing the court system to go after the individuals that are 
are facilitating that. And if that requires companies to have people's verified email addresses and more identifying information about them, even if they can have an anonymous username, but logging that in a way that if there is a valid court order, it can be found, would that make it easier to, to go after the people? Well, I think it might. And if the platforms are protected and the remedy for someone being subjected to targeted harassment is, okay, well, you've got to go sue the harassers, then the companies also need to provide that information so that you can go and sue those who are harassing. However, even if you shut it down on Reddit, it will go to other sites like Discord and 4chan and elsewhere. So it is kind of a whack-a-mole until you can get the courts to take action against the individuals. And that is not always, cyber harassment is not always an easy thing um, to prosecute. But if we see more civil actions, it might become risky enough that many won't choose to engage in that behavior once they are unmasked. Yeah. And I mean, I think you may, you raise a lot of good points there. And with, and if these companies did more to make it easier to go after and prosecute and hold these people accountable that are spreading all this hate and misinformation online, I think that that could have a chilling effect. But also if when you when you sign up for Reddit, if you have to say, if Reddit says, just to let you know, we can find you, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Because um, I do, I honestly think a lot of these people do this behind a fake name because they believe that they will never, that this is the a pretend world where laws don't exist when they're behind a fake name and that they can't do real damage, but they can. And it's been a struggle for me too as a huge advocate for freedom of speech and as you said i i don't want i believe the the rise of independent creators is really helping journalism and a lot of true crime and i believe that there's a lot of good with the justice system that comes from that um but we've got to do i feel like um especially with people like purchasing bot armies that I've seen and all, there's just a lot of it's fraudulent activity going on and it's, it's hurting real people. It's not just, I, I feel like people are like, Oh, I'm in the UK, so I cannot possibly, and that makes it more complicated too. If somebody from the UK um, can harass. Even though the laws there are more strict, it, the, the bot thing where it's not real people behind the accounts is a whole nother factor to it because at that point you're following the money and who is benefiting off that is you know our platforms that allow that type of of non-verified non-human behavior going on what what are the responsibilities there and how will that change this is something i talk about a lot with the growing of uh deep fakes of ai of voice recreation of easy video recreation it's the problem is going to get worse before it gets better because verifying what is truth is getting more difficult, especially for just the casual observer. It's getting harder to know what is a fact. And we saw this during Debbie Heard. The LA Times reported that Jason Momoa had testified. There were, there were tw uh, TikTok compilations going around of Jason Momoa testifying but he didn't actually testify in the trial and they retracted it fairly quickly. But even those vetting it through editorial boards got fooled by a meme on TikTok and reported it as fact. This is going to become 
more difficult. And if we can't have open conversations about it without fear that you're going to have one person controlling 30 accounts, making a big stink and then, and then it being a problem, then, then what do you do? So it, it is a problem. I think there are some solves for the problem, but I think holding the individuals who are doing it responsible has to be the beginning of that solve. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, and I, like you said, I think more people just need to talk about it. And I think that it need it's, we are facing a time where it's becoming in and it's, and it's harder on the journalists at the LA times when they have a million, like I would get really frustrated with all the rumors flying around constantly within these Reddit groups and Facebook groups. And they were completely false. Cause you just have to stop your day and start calling sources and to verify. And it just makes everything increasingly difficult when it's hard to tell what the truth is. But Emily, I know that I've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate you. And thank you again for joining us. I appreciate you too. This This has been fantastic. It's been a great conversation. I'm sorry for all of the long answers. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thank you to the premium members for um, joining us today and making this possible. And one thing, Emily, can you do a shout out to my Uncle Dave, who was a fan of yours? Absolutely. (laughs) Uncle Dave, thank you for your support. I absolutely adore you. Well, thank you. And uh, take care, everyone. This was amazing. I really appreciate you joining us, Emily. I am so proud of this conversation with Emily and excited for premium members to listen to the second half on the premium feed. To get the full experience, visit lunashark.supercast.com and become a premium member today. We'll be right back for my interview with host of Crime Analyst, Laura Richards. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people who had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want to temporarily restore definition in your jawline where it's been lost over time? With Juvederm Volux XC, you can get a non-surgical jawline treatment that adds volume for smooth contour and to reduce the appearance of jowls in one in-office treatment with little downtime. Juvederm Volux XC injectable gel is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. We are here with Laura Richards, and um, I'm really excited about this interview. I'm a big fan of Laura, and she, I, first of all, I want to talk about your um, background. Laura, you were in police work, correct? That's right, although not as a warranted officer. So I spent 10 years at New Scotland Yard for my sins. I worked in their sexual offences section, which was in their intelligence branch. So the first five years was about identifying serial rapists, serial killers, and those who abduct um, children and women. And after that period of time, more than five years, I then started profiling domestic violence perpetrators backwards, a reverse engineering process to see whether we could identify these dangerous men far earlier. And in particular, because our domestic homicide rate was high, I was looking at can we identify warning signs, risk factors to try and prevent murders and what I call murders in slow motion. So I ran after that the the homicide prevention unit where I and my team had reduced domestic violence murders by 58% year on year, which was 33 people less dead each year. And we used the same methodology um, because my boss, who was the head of homicide, gave me another 14 portfolios to see whether I could do the same thing with these other areas. And uh, yes, it was a huge amount of work, working in a very different way, in a culture that is very challenging and has traditionally been very reactive and very secretive in the way that they do business. And there I was with my background in forensic and legal psychology, asking difficult questions and trying to understand, could we have intervened earlier? What questions should we have asked? What should we have done? And and can we prevent cases from escalating to murder? That's all very interesting. I have so many questions, but um, wondering, first of all, what are some of your findings for what you call murder in slow motion and how to prevent that? Um, what are some of the things that you have found? Yeah, so one of the key things I kept being asked, you know, can we do this with serial killers, contract killers? And I said, well, let's start with what we know. And a lot of people do report domestic violence to the police. So I started with domestic violence and I found that coercive control which is a term that's new in America, but coercive control correlates to femicide and familicide, to children being killed. And now we know it correlates to suicide. So asking questions about um, about coercive control, strangulation, so someone putting hands around the neck, particularly men to women, it increases the risk sevenfold to femicide. And things like separation, when, when there's abuse and the victim tries to leave and it normally takes them seven times to successfully leave but when trying to leave that's when things normally intensify and escalate and 76 percent of murders happen at the point where a woman says i'm leaving and i'm not coming back to you and with that finality 
that's when someone could become very vengeful. And if I can't have you, no one will. These sorts of things being said. So separation and escalation and sexual violence correlates to femicide. So I created a risk model from these risk factors and high risk factors being identified. And now it's within a toolkit called the DASH, which the police use, so that they ask these questions every time someone discloses domestic violence or stalking, because stalking is a high risk factor, stalking and, and honor-based abuse. So we are still continuing to try and intervene and prevent far earlier on when someone discloses domestic violence. That's very, very important work. How do you think that the patriarchy plays into police work? And how did you kind of fight that? I think that we kind of relate on the just kind of being the odd woman out (laughs) in some systems. And when you tell people that their way of thinking isn't necessarily wrong, but might need to change, I'm sure you were met with a lot of resistance. What what did you find about how the patriarchy plays into police work and investigations? Yes, all of the time I was the odd person out in the room asking difficult questions. And I think probably, you know, if I'd been asked this question 27, eight years ago, I probably wouldn't have seen the patriarchy and male entitlement and these things as being an issue. And it's something that I've learned across my career. That's what it all tends to boil down to. And it and it is a real challenge when you are spotlighting misogyny and patriarchy when a lot of people aren't even alive to that being a thing. You know, the old boys network and how it operates, particularly in the policing culture. And when you're someone like me who had a degree who, as many of them said, I I spoke like the Queen or Lady Penelope. I was always singled out as being the odd one out and not one of them. So you're always on the back end of briefings. You're always the last to know certain things, you know, regarding an operation, for example. So the misogyny inside the culture is the biggest challenge, first of all, and the male ego. I've just been talking on my other podcast, Real Crime Profile, about male egos getting in the way of identifying serial perpetrators and serial killers. You know, And that's what went on with the Rex Heuerman case. And the male ego is a huge problem, um, along with that culture of patriarchy, power over, where men are motivated to have power over, which is really what Domestic violence is all about that power over. So it comes up all the time in my work, and it's very hard to bring people along on the journey because people wake up to it at different times, you know, in their life and in their career. But when you're in an all predominantly all male environment and all male detectives, when I first started, and you're working sex crimes, it's a really tough environment to to work in and try and collaborate with people when you're seeing things totally differently majority of the time. With sex crimes particularly, I've been very interested in that recently. Have you happened to see the documentary uh, Victim Suspect? Yes, and I had the opportunity to speak to the director and to Rachel DeLeon, the the investigative reporter. Oh, that's awesome. I'm behind on that. I just wanted to watch it for, it's been out for a few months now, right? Um, Yes. But I knew it would make me really angry and get all of these emotions going. And I finally was like, I need to watch it today. And it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks while watching that. And not only that, but being a reporter covering sexual 
assault for so many years, I feel like the majority of law enforcement do not understand how to investigate sexual assault. It, like their their entire approach seems to be wrong, and the risk that victims have to take by just reporting the crime that's been committed against them. And it's unlike any other crime. Um, when you report a robbery, you're never considered the suspect. Um, it's just unbelievable. But what have you found with how um, kind of the patriarchy and these old systems of thought uh, affect sexual assault investigations and what's wrong with it? Yes, I mean, it's a huge subject and victim suspect is very well done. And I think Rachel, DeLeon and Nancy, they ask the right questions. And, you know, one of the things that I see coming up and have done consistently across my career is that women, when women report, they're not believed. Just for the sake that they're women, they're not believed. And... Oftentimes, if they're reporting to a male officer, you know, if that male officer hasn't experienced it for themselves or have it had it happen to someone around them, they struggle with understanding what they're being told. And they struggle with memory not being 100%. Certain things that we know when in trauma, that's what happens. And certain things like drugs or alcohol being used by the perpetrator or targeting a woman who is vulnerable because she's been drinking, there are certain perpetrators who will target those women intentionally and because they're vulnerable. But the fact that she can't remember everything, a male officer might think, well, that's because it didn't happen rather than they were targeted. And the fact they can't remember everything is actually an indication that it happened, trauma, and but they see it the other way around. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, the not believing, not taking seriously when women report things and the lack of compassion and empathy is a huge problem as well. And I, I don't know if you can teach compassion and empathy. And, you know, it's very much a, we know more women are abused and we know more men are the perpetrators. But there seems to be this, this move now to want to find more male victims and have more female perpetrators that's playing into what's going on present day. But victim suspect was very much a case, I believe, of officers coercing victims bullying them and trying to get them to retract and then under that by saying well this will go away if you just take if you just retract instead of them just letting that be the end of it they then arrest them because they still want the clear up and i believe that it it relates to the me too movement the backlash post me too and there's a punishment factor. And so there's now, you know, more cases where I'm seeing that women seem to be being punished as a consequence. And that is very insidious to me, seeing that happening um, and talking to Rachel and Nancy and knowing that, you know, this is tip of the iceberg of the cases being found. But women not being believed is a massive problem. Yeah. And the, that was just devastating, um, seeing those women that felt like they had no other choice but to plead guilty. Um, and yeah, the system failed them entirely. And like you said, 
they're also dealing with very complex trauma at the time of all of this going on, and it just makes it so much worse. But yeah, that, that was the thing that kind of hit me. They were looking for things that should have been the opposite of what they were looking like. Correct. It's like they're following this book that is completely wrong when it comes to sexual assault, saying things like, well, you don't remember anything, so that mean, that must mean that you're lying. And... And I also just feel like, like you said, the male ego plays a, a role. Um, in that case, I just noticed a lot of the police officers, unfortunately, could see themselves more in the perpetrator, and they wanted to protect, protect the perpetrator more than the victim. And they could see themselves being falsely blamed, and they didn't want that to happen. And it was just wrong. Um and really, really scary for the future of sexual assault reporting. And I, I think my overall conclusion after watching that was the importance of having more women in law enforcement and having women who understand trauma and can at least have compassion, like you said, and empathy toward the victims. And something needs to change because the likeliness of someone even reporting a sexual assault is so low and the likeliness of them getting actually um, arrested and charged and prosecuted for a sexual assault is even lower. And now coupling that with this rise in women who are getting charged for reporting their own rapes, which is just a horrible thing to say, I can't imagine what that does as far as the chilling factor. It's just horrible. Yes. And then they have to fight the system. And I, I think, you know, a lot of it is the, the double standard. He can just say he didn't do it, but she has to prove way beyond that it happened. But he can just be taken at his word. And that's what we saw with, you know, some of the, some of those cases where they didn't even interview the alleged perpetrator. They just took it. Well, he didn't want to come in for an interview, Well, that was good enough for them. But yet there they are, you know, grueling interview of her over hours and hours with no care for her in a, in a freezing room in trauma. And there's just a complete double standard. And actually with the Gabby Petito case, that was one of the things that I saw on camera of the officers being manipulated by Brian Laundrie. And even within Utah's own 101 domestic violence guidelines in their, you know, 100 odd page documented best practice, it says, take care. The more alike the officer is, the cop, to the perpetrator, the harder it is for the cop to believe that the perpetrator did what she said he has done. Take care around this. You know, it was all spotlit. And if you just take the picture of Brian Laundrie and Officer Pratt, physically, they look alike as well. But he just did everything that he could to make Brian Laundrie the victim and Gabby. And we see on camera and on Crime Analyst, I took it apart in 23 episodes of literally each interaction and the bro code and what was going on with Officer Pratt changing the whole temperature of that police stop. And the young officer, Officer Robbins, taking his lead because he's the more senior officer. And it was the wrong lead to take, even though Brian is clearly manipulating them. And by the end, they're fist pumping you know, these are the things with bro code that there must be accountability. 
And the way that you change that is you, yes, you have to have more women, I believe, in senior leadership positions, but you have to have accountability for when it's the same shoulder collar numbers coming up, that there is a consequence to those wrong and neglectful and corrupt decisions being made. And in the Met, for example, my old uh, police force at New Scotland Yard, there's just been a big, a huge review into them called the Casey Review. And it was spotlighting all the things that I saw and had called out within the police service. And, you know, it only came to light again because one of their own officers, Wayne Cousins, had abducted, using his warrant card at the time of COVID, a young woman called Sarah Everard, and he raped her and he killed her. And... He had indecently exposed himself multiple times to other people prior to that. He was named. He wasn't spoken to. His, the police had his vehicle registration index. They never followed it up. And he got away with it. And he went on and escalated his behaviour to, to abduct, rape and murder. So that, that's you might say that's on the extreme end of it. But unfortunately, perpetrators are attracted to the police force because of the power and control, the patriarchy, the power they have over. So it shouldn't really come as any surprise. But yes, these are horror stories that do need to, um, you know, have sunlight put on them. And Victim Suspect, I think, did a very good job. And more often than not, you're seeing women being bullied and coerced and the misogyny happening right before your very eyes and those interviews were all caught you know on camera and there was no basic investigation they were making conclusions before even properly investigating which again is just unacceptable and on that note we'll be right back y'all I am so excited to tell you about our new AquaTrue water purifier. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters, and we are enjoying the benefits every day. And you don't have to worry about PFAs or other harmful contaminants. Best of all, our water tastes fantastic. It is even portable, making it perfect for renters or college dorms, or even when embedded in a trial. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. Today, my listeners receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code COJ at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use promo code COJ. As y'all know, we're out on the West Coast connecting with fans, meeting with partners, and having a little fun too. All the planes, trains, and automobiles can be stressful. But do you know what's going to keep me comfy and confident along the way? You guessed it, Viore. And Viore makes a fantastic gift for the people in your life who deserve the most comfortable and versatile clothing. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet 
at viori.com slash COJ. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash COJ. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viori.com slash COJ and discover the versatility of Viori clothing. What did you think was some of the most compelling evidence against Alex Murdoch? I mean, for me, because I'm a behavioral person, so the, the, the language on the 911, the things that were missing were significant to me, but that's not actual evidence. It's just indicators to ask more questions. In terms of the actual um, physical evidence, well, the video probably is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence, the video placing him at the kennels just minutes before Paul and Maggie were killed, namely because the whole time he had maintained he was not there, that he had napped and went to his mother's and he hadn't seen them for you know over an hour. And he maintained that continuously. And that piece of video where multiple people confirmed it was his voice. And just within minutes, both Paul and Maggie are shot dead. He had to explain that. And the lies that came thereafter to explain it you know, were again very, for me, compelling. The last person to be there, the fact Paul had no defensive wounds, when we look at the crime scene itself and how they were killed, the staging, for me it was very clearly a staged crime scene. It would be very unlikely to have someone who was stalking them, who happened upon them, who managed to control that scene and commit that type of offence. And for him to have been in the house, never heard a thing, everything he said, made little sense. There were just these big omissions in his account, and he never specified in the three interviews time, which it's omissions for me that I look for, not just what's said. He omitted any form of time frame of when he was doing things, and that was intentional. Because he's a lawyer and he knows that time is the thing that normally is problematic and catches people out. But the timeline itself for him, and I think... You know, when we talked before, I, and in my episodes, I take the timeline apart, the data, which shows not only was he there, but mapping the 4,000 plus data points of his vehicle and the acceleration at certain points and where Maggie's phone was thrown. Once you see that mapped against his steps, the 280 odd steps just after they were killed, you know, you start to piece together a very compelling narrative. And it's a narrative of phone calls, text messages, data, vehicle data, the videos that tell a very different story that's far more reliable because it's data and it doesn't change from his narrative. And that to me was the overwhelming and compelling picture of the evidence that it just wasn't possible for it to be anybody else other than Alec Murdoch. Right. And that's where there was no reasonable doubt. And I said that to people a lot then. Um, one of the biggest things I think we definitely relate on, I learned throughout the investigation was just, and it's simple. You just stop to think about, well, I learned that Maggie and Paul both did not have rigid schedules. That they came and go from different houses all the time. And that on top of, well, who, and you said this in one of your episodes, who could have possibly have been had known that Maggie and Paul were at the kennels in this moment and had the um, 
had the balls to go on the Murdoch property where there's all these guns. How could it be? And then again, that on top of the video and on top of just all of the other evidence against Alex, it just got to the point of I could not possibly see how this could be anybody else. And I think he's very, he's still pretty good at convincing people otherwise. Back to the behavior analysis. Do you think that Alex is a narcissist? Would you classify him as a narcissist? Well, having not directly assessed him, but indirectly looked at his behavior through other people and through watching footage, etc., I I believe that there are a lot of traits of psychopathy. And he should be assessed for psychopathy. And more so the things that were missing for me was the lack of love and care for Maggie and for Paul in the aftermath and no real thought for them. It was all heavily process-driven scripting of relaying things to the police on interview but and all this fake crying. But the lack of any form of real emotion... You know, and psychopaths are very chameleon-esque. They're very good at being able to read people's emotional temperatures and also fake emotion. And a lot of that kind of hyperventilating, et cetera, with no tears, but almost looking at the officer to see, you know, in the car, are you, are you buying this? There were lots of those moments for me. Um, but the superficial charm, there were 20 traits of psychopathy and it was uh, the psychopathy checklist, PCLR, was developed by someone called Dr. Robert Hare, and there are 20 traits and you score someone um, on those 20 traits at the more extreme of those tra traits, they score two points. So the maximum out of that are, are 40 points. And he scores quite high from things like superficial charm, pathological liar. You know, he lied and lied and lied again. And he has no problem with changing, reversing, doing a full 360 and still telling you 100% that it's this. And he doesn't see anything wrong with that that he believes it 100% he can rewrite the narrative his manipulation his lack of remorse and guilt you know about any of it not once does he tell those officers again talking about what was some of the things that were omissions not once does he tell those officers I have a drug habit or I have financial problems and it could be related to that it was all centered on Paul and Paul's behavior which is really the leakage because it was about Paul he was telling the truth that it was about Paul, but his shallow, shallow effect in terms of his emotion, they're all just very, you know, superficial reactionary emotions to get people to do what he wants them to do. His failure to accept responsibility, his impulsivity. You know, I think some of the things we were seeing towards the end was impulsivity um, in terms of the decisions that he took, which you can't quite square in your own mind because they sound bonkers, but he does it anyway. And, you know, I think probably looking back across his life course, people would say that of him at different times in his life, you know, that he would be the unpredictable one, I think was what Mark Tinsley said in terms of cases, that suddenly he would do something out of left field. Um, so, you know, I think that there would probably be a history of, of, you know, prone to boredom and certain things in terms of his personality type. But the traits of, of psychopathy, you know, we often don't think about psychopaths being in white collar jobs, but they are. And 
there are, there are numerous papers written uh, by colleagues called psychopaths in suits. You know, the individuals who are the lawyers, the police officers, the judges, they're in these posi high-powered positions. And they love nothing more than making themselves look really busy, creating a lot of frenetic, you know, and they can be exciting to be around, but they just use people as pawns. And it's all about getting power over them, dominate or be dominated. And everything is about having their needs met. And that's what I see for Alec Murdoch, that everything was on a very superficial level, even his relationship with Maggie. He couldn't actually say one nice thing about her personality and about why he loved her. It was all about what she did for him and the family. And the same with Paul, to throw your son under the bus who's just been murdered and the first thing you say to the officer on the scene is it, it relates to the boat crash. It's because of what he did. That takes a, a certain someone to do that, to throw his son under the bus at every opportunity, but to preserve himself at every opportunity. And I know that I've taken up a lot of your time, so, um, and I have a billion more questions, but I'll ask this one. Um, what do you have to recommend or suggest to women out there who might have friends who are in controlling abusive, psychologically abusive relationships, but not physically abusive. And women who are listening thinking, huh, that reminds like a lot of Alex Murdoch's tendencies to control and manipulate. Um, that reminds me of my friend's husband. What advice do you have for people dealing with that? And how can they get out of is there a way for them to leave relationships like that safely? Yes. I mean, my advice would be to research coercive control and they can go on my Laura Richards website or the Dash Risk Checklist website and listen to my episodes on crime analysts because I talk about it a lot in different cases. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's the thing with the power imbalance. And a lot of women write to me and say, my goodness, you've just changed the whole way I see the world and how I understood my childhood, my relationship with my partner. And I realize now the misogyny and the coercive control that has always felt wrong, but I never knew there was a name for it. I never knew how to describe it or that, you know, it wasn't a problem before because I was quite happy. I had a child and I was, you know, doing the homemaker part, but now I want to go back to work and he won't let me or certain things you're being micromanaged and regulated. You know, if somebody's willing to change and you feel it's safe to bring it up to that person, because there are some men who just, they were brought up in the patriarchy. That's just the way that they behave. They don't realize that it's a problem. So if you feel that you have a relationship where you can bring it up to that person, you can try and explain to them how certain behaviors make you feel. If you don't feel safe, i.e. there's a fear of consequence that if you don't do what that person wants you to do and you don't feel safe, well, that sounds like a very... Uh, risky and dangerous situation to be in if you don't feel safe because relationships should feel safe and that you're trusted, you're respected and you're treated with dignity and equality and allowed to reach your potential. So if you are in with, with somebody like that, then I would absolutely research coercive control and think about leaving, but leaving is a process and it takes a long time. That's why it takes someone on average seven times to successfully leave a, a woman to leave a male abuser. You have to plan it and think it through and ensure you've got support and help from people to do so. 
Um, I'm not a person who says just grab your things and and flee because that's not going to be successful. And it's probably going to be more risky given that there may be stalking that happens thereafter. So make sure you get good advice from an expert, a specialist. There are plenty of domestic violence support workers in the US, the UK, Australia, look at researching coercive control, listen to someone like Dr. Judith Herman, who's got a, it's a 1992 book, but Trauma and Recovery, she talks about coercive control and trauma and recovery. And it's very eye-opening and healing, I think, for a lot of victims and survivors. Um, but, you know, if you have children, it becomes more complicated because you have to think about them and obviously contact down the line. So it's not just a simple fix you know, you come alive to these things at different times when you hear people talking about it. And, you know, I often say if you've got a friend, for example, who's with a coercive controller and you're worried about them, encourage them to listen to a crime analyst or watch Dirty John or, you know, listen to a podcast where they talk about it so that it opens up her mind and possibility, you know, that this is happening to her so that she starts to realize in her own time and space. Because the worst thing you can start to do is dictate to her what she should do, just like he does. So you want to be supportive and make somebody feel like you are going to be there for them and you want to help them understand what's going on, but also help them exit safely. And it's their choice to take that action because you want that person to have their own autonomy and to plan it in the best way to keep them and, and their children safe. And, and I say that because coercive control does correlate with femicide and with familicide, with children being killed and with suicide, where women end their own lives because they feel so hopeless and helpless. Laura, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. And where can people follow you and find more information about all of this amazing work that you do? Yes, thank you, Mandy. It's a pleasure talking with you. And yes, I mentioned Crime Analyst podcast, but there's also a YouTube as well where people can watch me do, you know, shorter videos explaining cases and um, also the website, thelaurarichards.com. It's just changed to and the dash risk checklist um, dot com. That's where the risk assessment and questions that you can ask and go through on your own to understand whether somebody is being abusive to you, because it's not always clear. Um, and Paladin National Stalking um, Advocacy Services in the UK. So if someone's listening and they're suffering and being subjected to stalking, there's an advocacy service there that I, that I founded, having changed the law on stalking. Um, so yes, they're the main ones. And obviously on social media, I'm at The Crime Analyst on Twitter and Instagram at Crime Analyst and at Laura Richards 99. So I put a lot of information out there because I want to help as many people as possible. And that's the power of podcasting as well. And, you know, the YouTube, because it's very intimate when people are hearing you. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of women have contacted me to say, I said something and it made them think about X. And some who say I helped save their life or get them out of a situation. And I always say, no, you did that because I'm all about empowering women to be empowered to step into their power and giving them the right information to to help them on that journey absolutely and i am too um i have a feeling this will not be the last time we talk <laughs> i hope not i've enjoyed it very much you know again from me thank you so much for your work 
you've asked incredible questions and for crime analysts i've been listening a lot to your episodes and absorbing the questions that you ask and the answers and then analyzing you know the behavior and i think it's it's well for me i admire greatly the work that you've done because you did it with breaking news as well which is is not easy and you know for four years it's not easy to be in one case and that's all you're thinking about living eating breathing and i know because i'm there a lot of the time yeah, yeah. as well <laughs> but thank you so much for for everything you've done and a lot of people said to me they've listened to your podcast you know after crime analysts and they feel like good companion podcasts and they're very complimentary so i'm i'm very proud to for when people say that because you know i tell everybody to listen to your podcast on the subject of the murdoch murders yeah i think they're very complimentary of each other and i think we have a lot of um, similar like-minded fans and i'm excited uh, for this crossover absolutely um but thank you again for joining us i really appreciate it thank you again for joining us and i'm sure we will hear from you again thank you mandy We were so grateful to Laura for her time and insight. To listen to the complete interview with crime analyst Laura Richards, visit lunashark.supercast.com and become a premium member today. Please check out Laura and Emily's content too, because each of them have an awesome interview with yours truly. I am so honored to have this opportunity to share their insight. Again, as we gear up for new cases and return to some old ones, your support of Luna Shark Premium is the best way to help us expose the truth wherever it leads, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. Stay tuned. We are just getting started. Cup of Justice is a Luna Shark production created by me, Mandy Matney, and co-hosted by journalist Liz Farrell and attorney Eric Blant. Learn more about our mission and membership at lunasharkmedia.com. Interruptions provided by Luna and Joe Pesky. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.